I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by John Michael Seibler, once again, to recap the last few weeks at the Supreme Court. And I also recently sat down with Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan. Hey, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me back. So let's talk about some of the SCOTUS headlines. A lot has happened since our last episode. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized after falling and fracturing three ribs. She missed one non-argument session at the court, but she expects to be back in time for arguments starting after Thanksgiving. Here's wishing the notorious RBG a swift recovery. Not her first rib injury, though. She's yeah. a tough cookie. She is a tough cookie. Uh, I think she fractured or broke two ribs in 2012. She's battled mm-hmm. and defeated cancer twice. Twice. Uh, she's a, she is a tough cookie. Right. And her colleague, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, had his formal investiture last week. President Trump and the First Lady were in attendance at the celebration where Kavanaugh took the oath of office. Retired Justice Anthony Kennedy, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Kavanaugh's former D.C. Circuit colleague Merrick Garland were among the others in attendance. Robert Barnes of the Washington Post had a write-up of uh, of the investiture, and he he noted that President Trump was seen but not heard. <laughs> <laughs> so a rare feat for our president. Uh, moving on to cert grants and pending cases, the court scheduled Nick versus Township of Scott, Pennsylvania, for re-argument later in the term. We've discussed this case before. It's the dispute over rocks on private property and whether they are actually gravestones. And the property owner is asking the court to overrule a 1980s-era Supreme Court precedent that requires property owners to exhaust takings claims in state court before they can go to federal court. The Supreme Court has asked the parties to file briefs addressing an issue that came up during the argument, which is when does the property owner's right to compensation accrue? This is likely a sign that the eight-justice court could not reach a decision, and they want Justice Kavanaugh to be able to participate in the case. The court also asked the parties in Frank against Gauss to file supplemental briefs addressing whether the petitioner has standing. This is the case involving Cypre settlements and class action lawsuits. The case was not rescheduled for, for another argument, so I guess we'll see what happens when those briefs come back in. That's right. The court has also granted cert in several cases, including the American Legion versus American Humanist Association. This case involves an Establishment Clause challenge to a 93-year-old World War I memorial in Bladensburg, Maryland, that includes a 40-foot cross. The court is also going to hear a redistricting case from Virginia. There's never any shortage of redistricting (laughs) cases, it seems. And this one involves the majority-minority House of Delegates districts in Virginia. And finally, the court denied cert in half a dozen consolidated petitions challenging the FCC's net neutrality rule. This was the Obama-era order barring Internet service providers from giving preferential treatment to some web traffic. The FCC, under Chairman Ajit Pai, has already reversed the order. Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch would have granted the petition, vacated the D.C. Circuit's decision upholding the order, and ordered the appeals court to dismiss it as moot. Robertson Kavanaugh did not participate. Kavanaugh, because he heard the case below and dissented from the ruling upholding the order. And Roberts, likely because his most recent financial disclosure shows he owns Time Warner stock and Time Warner's parent company, AT&T, was one of the challengers in this case. Next up, I recently spoke with Kyle Duncan, and this interview was recorded on site at the Federalist Society Annual Lawyers Convention here in Washington. So please bear with us because the audio is not perfect. Kyle Duncan is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Judge Duncan, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. So before becoming a judge, you spent time as the general counsel of the Beckett Fund, 
an organization dedicated to defending religious liberty for all faiths. What drew you to this cause? That's a great question, Elizabeth. Um, I, interestingly enough, um, I litigated against Beckett when I was uh, SG in Louisiana. Uh, they were on the other side of a case, and I thought they did excellent work. I had heard of them already because I did a church state scholarship when I was a law professor, so I knew who they were. Uh, and then I saw how excellent their work was, uh, top-notch legal work. And when they recruited me to be general counsel, it was, it was a pretty easy decision. I thought it was a great organization, um, and they, they do great work on on you know the First Amendment. The First Amendment is is an extraordinarily important part of our Constitution. Definitely. So you also served as the appellate chief for the Attorney General of Louisiana. Many other states call this the Solicitor General. Tell me about this experience. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. One of the best jobs I ever had until this job. Um, I got to work on, I was privileged to work on so many important cases for the state of Louisiana, rep, really representing the people of the state of Louisiana in a direct way. Um, I got to work on the most interesting high profile cases. I got to, I, I had a lot of, um, uh, I had a lot of discretion about how to, how to frame the arguments. Uh, nobody was telling me, you know, ex you need to do this, you need to do that. It was really, it was really a lot of freedom. Um, and I got to argue in, in the court that I now sit on uh, many times and even the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, it was just a wonderful privilege. So as you mentioned, you've argued dozens of cases in the courts of appeals and two before the Supreme Court. So tell me about arguing before the Supreme Court. What was that like? Uh, unforgettable. Unforgettable. Uh, I will never forget riding in the taxi on the way to my first uh, SCOTUS argument. I was very nervous. Um, I had been in the court. I had been in the court before second chairing cases, and I had been in the court the day before that, just to take it in again, uh, reminding myself just how close you're standing to the justices when you're arguing. What an intimate setting uh, it is, even though it's a grandiose court. It's a really intimate setting. Um, my my mentor when I was a young attorney, Greg Coleman, um, texted me on the way to the argument and, and said, "Kyle, remember to smile." Uh, and let them know how happy you are to be standing in front of them. And that helped dissipate some of the nervousness, but it was, I, it was just such a privilege to be able to do that. And I will never forget what, the, the, the first question I got from Justice Ginsburg, and then the second question I got was from Justice Sotomayor, and I remember thinking to myself, Justice Sotomayor is asking me a question. And then I had to remind myself, pay attention to the question that she's, that she's asking you so you can answer it. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, it was not the most nervous that I've ever been in, in before an argument. Uh, the most nervous I was ever before an argument was when I argued uh, the Hobby Lobby case in the Anbach 10th Circuit. Because of all the public uh, attention that case was getting, I didn't sleep the night before. Uh, but it was, but uh, SCOTUS was unforgettable. So did you have any pre-argument rituals? You know, I know some advocates eat superfoods, they eat salmon, um, or some people have a lucky tie or something like that. Anything like that? Um, well, I, on a serious note, I always try to say the rosary uh, the, the morning of the argument to kind of calm myself. Uh, and on a lighter note, yes, I used to have a lucky tie. It was a beautiful tie that I bought in Italy that was yellow and it had um, fleur-de-lis on it, which is a, a symbol for Louisiana. Uh, and I always wore that tie, and then quite recently I left it in a hotel and lost it. So I no longer have my lucky tie. Uh, I'll have to get a new one, uh, but, uh, but uh, that tie served me well. 
All right, well, I think that's a call to action for our listeners to find a new fleur-de-lis tie for Judge Duncan. Uh, so how has the transition been going from being an appellate litigator to an appellate judge? It's hard to take it in. Um, I love the Fifth Circuit. I clerked on the Fifth Circuit. I still remember my first day clerking on the Fifth Circuit. Um, I have a picture of myself that the clerk's office found from when I was clerking on the Fifth Circuit. I have the little ID picture. Um, I've argued in front of the Fifth Circuit many times. Uh, to be a judge on the Fifth Circuit, it's, it's difficult to put it into words. Um, uh, my colleagues are so smart, each and every one of them, so principled, such great colleagues. They've given me such a, a wonderful welcome. Um, it, it's just, it's, I'm still taking it in. Um, obviously, I'm no longer an advocate for anybody except for the Constitution and for the law. Uh, and that's a big change, although it's, it's one that I welcome and, and, um, and embrace. So tell me about some of your mentors. You mentioned Greg Coleman, and I'd love to hear more about him and, and uh, perhaps the judge that you clerked for in the Fifth Circuit. Sure. Uh, so I mentioned Greg. Greg recruited me to the Solicitor General's Office of Texas when I was a very young attorney in 1999. Uh, Greg's just quite simply one of the best attorneys I've ever seen. Uh, I had the privilege of working closely with him. Uh, he came with me to my first oral argument in Edinburgh, Texas, on the Texas-Mexico border. Um, he let me have so much responsibility, um, which showed me that he trusted me to work hard and to make to, to do the right thing. Um, he was a model of integrity. I remember in a huge case in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Greg and the Attorney General of Texas confessed error. Uh, in a case where it was an obvious error, and they confessed error, and a lot of people weren't happy about that. Greg was just a model of integrity and diligence and good humor. Um, He taught me a lot. Uh, As listeners may not know that Greg died in a plane crash uh, about eight years ago, and he's missed by so many people. He touched so many people's lives. I got to see his son the other day who works in the White House Counsel's office. I got to see his, his wife, uh, Stephanie. He was a wonderful guy. Uh, Judge Dewey, I, I, was, I just came to my, I hadn't seen him in a few years, John Dewey, uh, Fifth Circuit judge. He came to my investiture and spoke just recently. Um, judge Dewey taught me that judges carry deep, heavy responsibility, serious responsibility, but that doesn't mean that they don't need to be humble and they don't need to uh, have a good sense of humor about their work. Uh, they don't need to take themselves seriously. Their responsibilities are serious, but they don't need to take themselves seriously. And he was a wonderful model of, of what a principled judge uh, should be doing. We, judge, judge Dewey and I never talked politics. I don't know what his politics were. Um, we just decided cases according to the law, and that's what I hope to do. Well, it sounds like you've had some really incredible mentors throughout your career. So. I've spoken with a lot of former law clerks about their experiences, but I'd love to hear from a judge's perspective, what lessons do you hope that your clerks will take away from their time with you? That's a great question. Um, work hard. Uh, work hard. Take, your, take the responsibilities of your job very seriously. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a law clerk or a lawyer or you know, somebody's assistant or, or a janitor. Uh, take your responsibilities very, very seriously. Uh, you, somebody puts you there uh, at this time to do this work, uh, it, and you, you take it seriously. Do a good job. Uh, the other thing is law is hard. Um, there, there, there are very few easy cases, and, and we don't see them 
you know, if the case the cases were easy, they wouldn't come to us. We would, they wouldn't be argued before us. So the, the law is hard. You have to work really, really hard to get to the right answer. Um, and I want my clerks to understand that after you work really hard and you study really hard, then the answer hopefully will become clear. Uh, but you have to put in a lot of hard work before that. Uh, and I, I hope they I hope they see me doing that. Uh, and I hope they they themselves do that in their career. So are you starting any traditions with your clerks? I've heard about skiing with Judge Timkovich, uh, trips to Gettysburg with Justice Thomas, and searching for the best tacos in Salt Lake City with Utah Supreme Court Justice Lee. So do you have any traditions that, that you're hoping to start? Uh, that's a great question. Now, I'm just halfway through my first clerkship class. Uh, they're great. Uh, we're working on some traditions. Uh, one, tra- uh, one of my clerks is Tiffany Bates, who you may know. Uh, she's doing an excellent job. Uh, Tiffany insists on finding every occasion she can to bake things and bring them into chambers. Uh, I don't know if that constitutes a tradition. Uh, it would be great if it did. Uh, she, does a, she does a great job. We'll work on their tradition. Something tells me they're going to revolve around food. Uh, we're in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We get to go to New Orleans for sittings. I think my clerks have the best of all worlds. Uh, we, get to, we, get to, we get to live in Baton Rouge where they can go see the LSU Tigers play as much as they like. And then we travel to New Orleans and, and, uh, and we work really hard, but we also eat good food. So uh, we're working on the traditions. I'll, I'll check back in with you in a few years and let you know. Well, so if the, our listeners were wondering what happened to Tiffany Bates, now they know that she's clerking for Judge Duncan on the, the Fifth Circuit. Now I have to ask, what has been the best cake that she's made so far? Oh boy, gosh, that's that's a hard one. I wasn't prepared to answer that question. She made she made some white chocolate chip macadamia nut cookies, I think, the other day that were really excellent. But then again, I'm thinking of a pumpkin cake that she made that maybe is better than that. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I, I'll have to get back to you on that. Well, both sound delicious, and especially pumpkin in time for Thanksgiving. Uh, so do you have anything in your chambers that reflects your personality? Uh, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, I guess, first of all, I should mention that I really, I have a, a beautiful chambers, but they're not mine. Uh, they are a district judge's chambers, Judge Jim Brady, who passed away, unfortunately, last year. And the middle district of Louisiana, where my chambers are, has been gracious to let me sit in. Judge Brady's chambers. Uh, he had a he has a beautiful uh, John Jay Audubon, who's a famous Louisiana artist, print of a pelican that's over my desk that I think is just wonderful. Uh, and and so I I'm, I'm very much appreciate that. It says Louisiana um, to me. A couple of things in chambers that I have uh, on a on a serious on a serious note, uh, a friend of mine um, gave me a piece of the jail cell in which St. Thomas More spent his last days before he was beheaded by King Henry VIII. And as some of your listeners may know, St. Thomas More was a great judge, he was a great chancellor of England, he's a great figure for religious liberty and for freedom of conscience. Uh, and, and I keep that in, in my chambers uh, to remind me about the importance of conscience and freedom. Uh, he also happens to be my patron saint. Uh, so that, that, that's reflective of my personality. The other thing that I have to mention is that I have a bobblehead of my first cousin, Aaron Nola, uh, who is a, a, the ace pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies in my chambers. Uh, he didn't win the Cy Young Award. I think he should have maybe next year, um, but he had a fantastic season, and I have a bobblehead of him uh, uh, from the, the Philly State. They had, a, they had a Star Wars night uh, for, um, uh, for their players, and he was, he was featured as Han Nola. Uh, and so I have that in my chambers, and, uh, and that, that, uh, that means a lot to me. Um, but I'm sure I'll accumulate other things over the years, and I'll, I'll tell you about them when I get them. 
That's great. Well, one final question, something that we ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? That's a great question. There's so many I could pick. I was thinking about this. Um, although we probably share a quite different worldview, um, uh, I, I've always wanted to talk to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, uh, Justice Holmes, just, just judging from his writings and his speeches, uh, could, have, could be a blunt person. Um, he's probably the most quotable Supreme Court justice in the history of the court, I would say. Uh, he's up he's in the top three. Um, I would love to hear from Justice Holmes about what he thinks of the modern-day confirmation process. Um, we all know how contentious it's become, how it's sort of politicized. I guess it was always political. It just seems to have been a heightened, heightened kind of politicization of it. I'd love to hear what he thinks of that and how it reflects on the work of the Supreme Court. Uh, famously, he said... The Constitution doesn't have theories in it like, you know, Herbert Spencer's social statics, you know, a, a, a fashionable economic theory of the day. The Constitution doesn't have that in them, doesn't have esoteric theories in it. Um, and I'd just be curious to know what he thought. I'd also, I also sort of would daydream about what Justice Holmes would be like during a confirmation hearing. Uh, I think, I wonder if he'd make it through. I can imagine, I can imagine him answering some of the senators' questions and it being very, very entertaining and enlightening for everybody. So that's my pick at, uh, at this point. Well, that would be a wonderful conversation uh, to hear. Well, Judge Duncan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Elizabeth. Great to be with you. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. Federalist Society edition in honor of FedSoc's annual lawyers convention. So I'm going to try to stump John Michael. Are you ready? Have you now or have you ever been a member of the Federalist Society? <laughs> First question. Which Supreme Court justice once said to great applause, I love the Federalist Society, but you know, you aren't my people. <laughs> uh, I would guess Kagan or Ginsburg. I'll guess Kagan. You are correct. This was Elena Kagan when she was the dean of Harvard Law School, and the school hosted the annual Federalist Society Student Convention. Next question. The silhouette of which founding father makes up the Federalist Society's logo? Ooh, is it Madison? You are correct. And apparently, Judge Robert Bork's son, Charles, is a graphic designer, and he designed the logo. But only after giving Madison a nose job, <laughs> because his real nose was apparently too ugly to adorn a brochure. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Next question. How many current members of the Supreme Court have been Federalist Society members? Official members, I think, four. Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And then isn't there some debate about whether or not Roberts was actually a member you are correct. It's a, a we're, we're going to go ahead and round up and say it's a slight majority Let's with, five, with five five members uh, who who have had strong ties to the Federalist Society. We'll put it that way. And strong ties with James Madison on James <laughs> Madison with a nose drop. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Final question: At which three law schools uh, were the original Federalist Society chapters? Ah, Chicago, Harvard, and Yale. That is correct. Well done. Can you name any of the faculty advisors? Pretty famous Well, people. I know the original faculty advisor, the head honcho. The head I honcho. I think was the late great Justice Scalia. That is correct. Uh, and it had to be Bork. That is also correct. Okay. 
<laughs> well done. Well, you knocked it out of the park with these questions, John, Michael. Good job. Yeah. Hey, broken clocks. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. And please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.